Uh, So today's reading comes from Psalm 139. It's verses 13 through 17. For you, God, formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully set apart, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me unformed substance, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Thank you, Eric. All right, so... If you remember last week, uh, we began kind of a season of really doing what the Apostle Paul says uh, that we're to do, um, specifically this idea of really like working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Did anybody remember where Paul says that like in, in, in Philippians, like how he writes to the Philippians about, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for his God was to work within you, to willing to work for his good pleasure, right? Like, there's always this kind of sense of like, okay, so how do I work out my salvation? Because isn't salvation the thing that's God-given? How do I, how, what, what part do I play in that? How, how does that actually work out? Maybe that's not your thoughts, but that definitely has been mine. But one, one translation puts the, the phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling like this. It says, with awe and with trembling, with wonder and with this kind of like, Almost a humility of trepidation, right? A, a, a meekness of, of trepidation. Do the service of your life. Do the service of your life. The service of our lives is not something we discover or uh, commence on our own, but is something that takes place within a larger story, right? I mean, Paul says, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is, and this, this always seemed to not make sense to me, right? Work out your salvation, you work it out, For it's God who's at work, he's doing the work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's doing the work, for God is carefully working in you, both to desire and do the thing which you desire, the service of your life. Like, how do we live in that kind of of paradox, that juxtaposition of we're called to work out our salvation, like we're called to work out this thing that God has given us, and at the same time, it's God who's at work within us to will and to work for the very thing that we're after, his good pleasure. It's really only in, um, hey Sam, it's really um, only with the confidence of such a relationship, right? The confidence of knowing that, um, knowing that we can do the thing that we're called to do, right? That I can work out my salvation. Why can I work out my salvation? Because God's within me. He's with me. There's a relationship, a connection there. And he's not only within me, he's with me. He's also there to give me the motivation, the desire to do the thing that I'm called to do and to equip me to actually do the thing that I'm called to do. So it's like I'm to do this thing that I'm called to do, but I'm to do this thing that I'm called to do because I'm loved, I'm competent, and I'm a part of it already. It's pretty incredible, right? It's kind of like everything we need as a human to function. And it's that kind of, that kind of con- con- confidence, this relational knowledge, if you will, that compels Jesus to say, as we've been looked at for the last several weeks on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Only somebody who had that much trust in who they are and whose they are and what they were called to do, and that they would be able to do the thing they were called to do, could say 
in the moment of the most intense pain and anguish mentally, physically, emotionally, for the sake of another person, for the sake of others. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Only such a person can give give themselves away so wholly. But that's what we're called to do, right? To wholly and completely give ourselves away. To give ourselves wholly into God's good pleasure and purposes worked out through our unique set-apart lives. The service of our lives, our salvation, crafted and cultivated, as it were, by participation in God's life, is more than a rescue from something, but a rebirthing into something. Or as Thomas Burton contends, what every person looks for in their life is their own salvation and the salvation of those they live with. Now, if we grew up Baptist, like, that may mean like some sort of prayed prayer or walk down an aisle, and I'm not knocking any of those things, but Merton means something more to salvation. I think more similar to what Paul means by salvation. He says, by salvation, I mean, first of all, the full discovery of who they themselves really are. Who they themselves really are. Who they truly are as ones created by God. Then I mean something of the fulfillment of their own God-given powers in the love of others and of God. Do the thing that they were called to do. Not only do they discover who they are, but they discover that they're called to something. And they get to fulfill that something. Not for their own sakes, but for the sake of others and of God. And I mean also the discovery that they cannot find themselves in themselves alone. But that they must find themselves in and through others. That they are a part of something more. And the only way to really know themselves is to know themselves in a relationship Ultimately, Martin contends these propositions are summed up in the two lines of the gospel. If any man would save his life, he must lose it and love one another as I have loved you. Add to it what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are all members one of another. And listen, this, this salvation that we long for, that we're meant to work out daily with fear and trembling and awe and wonder, because God is the one who's called us, who, who we know ourselves through, who has given us a purpose, a God-given power to exercise and for the love of others and for him, who has brought us into something more than ourselves. There's a mark of this discovery of giving ourselves away that comes from a committed life. There's something that distinguishes a committed life that's given to others more than anything else, and that something is joy. When we give our lives to someone or something else, we get to experience joy. David Brooks notes this. He says, and see if it's true for your, in your own accounts. Every once in a while, I meet a person who radiates joy. You ever met one of those people? Somebody that radiates joy? Like, not just a happy person, like, but a joyful person. He says, these people that he meets seem to glow with an inner light. There's something inside them that just draws you to them and points out things in life that maybe you would never even be aware of. They tend to be, as we would think, kind and tranquil, delighted by small pleasures and grateful for large ones. But they're not perfect. They get exhausted and stressed. They make errors in judgment. But they seem to live for others and not for themselves. They've made unshakable commitments to a family, a cause, a community, or a faith. They know why they were put on this earth and derive a deep satisfaction from doing what they have been called to do, from working out their salvation. Life isn't easy for these people. They've taken on the burdens of others, but they have a serenity about them, a settled resolve 
They are interested in you, make you feel cherished and known, and take delight in your good. They have decided that, as C.S. Lewis put it, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility, awe and wonder, fear and trembling can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. These people are not keeping their options open. They are planted. They have made strong commitments, again, to a vocation, a spouse, a family, a philosophy, a faith, a community. Their daily actions are aligned with their ultimate commitments. They have given themselves away, united and wholeheartedly, and their permanent joy comes out of an enmeshed and embedded life. A joyful life, whole and holy, comes through being enmeshed and embedded and giving ourselves away to something and someone other than ourselves. Which, if you think about it, sounds a lot like how Jesus described the life of his disciples and what he wants them to live in John 15, right? Remember what Jesus said? He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, enmeshed in me, entangled in me, embedded in me, does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, that something out of this life with me comes into fruition, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. Rest in it. Make your home in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what we're after. A committed life of joy. Our salvation, the service of our lives, worked out in awe and wonder and obedience, fully enmeshed in the lives of others, and wholly embedded in the affection of God for us, with us, and in us. Wouldn't it be great to be able at the end of our days to say that's what our life is? Don't we want that for our kids? So how do we get there? How do we grow up into a whole and holy life of joy? The author of Hebrews, if you remember, pointed us in the direction. I'm not going to go back through everything I talked about last week, but I just want to make sure that we remember that we're walking in step. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How we live a committed life to joy is first, <laughs> we understand that joy comes in self-forgetfulness and taking up our crosses daily, just as it did for Jesus, right? For the joy that was set before him and endured the cross. That this is our way to a full and whole life is by doing what Jesus said. Following him, taking up our crosses daily and carrying them into life. Remember what a cross is. On the, on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. Our crosses are not death for our sins. Jesus died for all of our sins, right? His cross did that. Our crosses are death to self, a denials of self for the sake of others, right? It's a giving of ourselves to others, to, to God, to, to others in need, to all those kind of things. And so there is a joy, um, Helen Keller said, in forgetfulness that comes in forget, self-forgetfulness, in denying yourself, 
in finding, finding joy, light, fullness in others. Not just in who they are, but in being a part of what God is doing in their lives. And we'll talk more and more about that as we go. And so first we recognize that it begins with joy. It's the joy that led Jesus to the cross. It's the joy that we're going after and even in our own working out of our salvation. But in so we, we imitate Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder and writer of our story, the one who started it and who finishes it for us, right? And so we look to Jesus over and over again and always and everything. But we don't just look to Jesus, we also listen to the stories of others. The writer of Hebrews started out, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 11 is a story of witnesses. It's the stories of others of faith who have walked in faith, who have gone before us, who go with us. And so we listen to the stories of one another, trying to recognize what God is doing in their lives and how God is working in ours to be encouraged in our commitment to joy. And then, yes, we lay aside binding weight and clinging sin. We lay aside everything that would bind and blind us from seeing Jesus, from knowing ourselves in the, the story and seeing his story in others. We cast off unnecessary habits, ideas, visions, and understandings of a life of holy commitment to God and others. And we put to death the sin which clings to a life less than our true lives. That's what we do. But we do it because there's joy. Because, we'll, because like Paul said in Philippians, we work out our salvation because God is already at work within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're going to work out our salvation with awe and trembling through an old practice called the examine. And the old practice called the examine specifically that has its origins in Psalm 139. And so that's where we're going to be for the rest of the day. In fact, what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of try to take some baby steps into the examine. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to practice the examine here in this space so that we can practice it on our own in DNA groups and gospel communities and things like that. So but let me ask you this. Like, we talked about this as a faith family several years ago, and so you may or may not remember it. But when you hear the word examine, what comes to mind? Does any positive come to mind when you hear the word examine? Test. Doctor? <laughs> yeah. Any, anything else? Anybody else? Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind for me is some sort of test assessing how well you know a subject or how competent you are in a particular area or field of industry, right? Some sort of like self-test or some sort of test at school or like, in, like Jan said, like a, a doctor testing you to make sure you still function, <laughs> Or what's not functioning well? Well, the examine of our faith is not that kind of examination. It's not a test to demonstrate our efficiencies or deficiencies. But rather, it's to see and act clearly with the truth of our existence. To, to do what Paul said. To work out our salvation, the service of our life. Because God is already at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Make sure that our life, our calling, who we truly are, is actually weighing out with how we're truly living. Make sense? It it's, actually comes from the Latin word, which refers to a weight indicator on a balance scale. The thing that sets the balance. So it's not a weight, it's not the, not the equal measurement weights, but it's the thing that balances the scale. And it conveys the idea of an accurate assessment of the true situation. So it's that which balances our scale, that we're truly living into our calling. 
who we've made to be in God. That's what the examine does. That's what it's meant to do. A practice that helps us do that. To live into fully who God says we are and what God is doing in us, around us, and through us. Yet, even if we rightly understand the examine as a weight indicator, helping us to live up to what is true of us, we still have a habit in our day of defaulting to self-examination. And as Richard Foster says, if the examination is solely self-examination, we'll always end up with excessive praise or blame, right? Has anybody ever done some sort of like inventory, life inventory of what's going well in life, what's going poorly in life, where your struggles are, where your strengths are, any, any of those kind of things? Probably nobody, right? Nobody's ever done any of this. Like, when we do those by ourselves, it always tends to be weighted one way or the other. Either we really think really highly of ourselves, <laughs> and we're doing awesome, or we think really poorly of ourselves, and we're doing really, really, really bad. But what's always kind of funny is when you give that to your spouse or to your coworker, to your friends, they're always like, that seems a little off. Like, you're not quite that good, or you're not quite that bad, right? Like, there's, there's, there's something about we cannot examine ourselves accurately. We just can't do it. We don't, we don't know ourselves that well, and we tend to judge ourselves in a pretty inaccurate way. And so it's that why, because of that tendency, which is a very human tendency, right, that why we use the examine through Psalm 139, which is actually where the examine got its name. The Psalm, of, Psalm 139 concludes with this. It says in Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. The literal translation, while your ESV says try me, the literal translation is examine me. Examine me. And know my disquieting thoughts. Some translations say know my cares. Some say know my anxieties. The idea of disquieting thoughts is those things that are, that whether we feel like with like something really passionately, like it takes us, kind of gets us out of our, our balance, or whether it's because like maybe something real anxiously, so it's both a passionate thing and an anxious thing. It takes in both those ideas. And it's something that it simply just disquiets our thoughts. Like maybe it just kind of hits us and I, you get, maybe you're super excited about something or super passionate about something or you're super anxious about something. That's a disquieting thing. Like all of a sudden it hits you and you don't know why. You're unsettled. You're not sure. Are you scared? Are you nervous? Are you, are you excited? Are you happy? Are you worried? Are you sad? You're not really sure. It's just something that unsettles you. It's a thought that unsettles you. And so the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Examine me and know my disquieting thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Literally, the idea of grievous way is this idea of any way that causes harm, that, that grieves God by causing harm to God, to ourselves, to others. Is there any hurtful way within us? Any way in which we're thinking, behaving, or living that is out of line with the way in which God would delight. And so therefore it grieves. So is there any grievous way in me? And lead me in the ancient way everlasting. Lead me in the way that was before me, in the way that will go after me. Put me on this path that is a forever path, right? Get me onto it. But you notice in, in this prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139, who does the examining? the weighing, the seeing, the leading, the knowing. God does, right? God does. The psalm ends where it began in the intimate knowledge of God, better of the intimate knowledge that God has of us. The psalmist begins in Psalm 139.1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It's God who does the examination, not us. And that's really the important key. 
And if we don't get that, everything we do for the next few weeks will feel, honestly, will feel either, either insufficient for any sort of good because we're just self-examining and we're building ourselves up, or it'll be overly condemning and therefore inefficient for anything good to actually build us up, right? Like We'll miss this very thing if we don't understand that what we're trying to enter into is not a knowledge of self based on ourselves, but rather inviting God to do what God does, to search us and to know us, to show us who we truly are and how we're to truly live. Pastor Eugene Peterson notes that what is most central to our salvation, to our knowing ourselves in relationship to others, to this life of service that we're called to, is this. The central item in the religious life isn't my knowledge of God, but it's his knowledge of me. The central item in the religious life isn't my knowledge of God, but his knowledge of me. It's not what you know about God, but it's that God knows you. It's not my faltering search for God, but his search for me. God's aggressive search for us and his exhaustive knowledge of us have resulted in an existence in which there is no place we can go where God is absent. There's no place we could go where God is absent. Not in our own story, not in our own minds, not in our own hearts, not in our own situations, not in our past, nor in our future. So what we're going to do today is we're going to get an opportunity to remember the truth of that. That there is nowhere we can go apart from God knowing us. That there has always been God knowing us. God has always known us. He will always know us. That's the first part of the exam. Before we can go into any sort of trying to figure out what we're called to and and all these things that we long for when we kind of think about our callings, our commitments, and all those kind of things, we have to begin where the psalmist begins, in a knowledge that God knows us. And he's always known us. He's always been there with us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to enter into kind of guided reading through Psalm 139, the first six verses. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there with me. Though for the most part, I'm going to have you listen. So let's read Psalm 131, verse 1, Psalm 139, verse 1 together as a prayer. Experiencing, confessing what we have experienced, but what sometimes we forget. Because again, the psalmist in Psalm 131, this is a declarative statement, right? This isn't a request, it's a de- declaration. And so read with me Psalm 139, verse 1 is that, as a declaration of what we have experienced, but sometimes forget. O oh Lord, you have searched me. And known me. Take a second just to sit in that. The reality of that. That God has searched you and does know you. Now before we read the rest of the psalm. Here's what I want us to do. So Psalm 1 Psalm 139, 1 through 6 kind of outlines a couple different ways in which the psalmist begins to recount the truth of that statement, that God has searched him and knows him. He recounts it in the ways God has known him before he sits up and sits down, before he speaks, before he does things, how God has acted preemptively on his behalf. He speaks of how God has known him at the heights of his life in the heavens, 
when he's at places of transcendence, of joy, of happiness, of success in life, and in the most dark depths of life. In Sheol, in a place where it seems like darkness is the only thing that will catch him, and yet has learned that God was further down and caught him still. All these things the psalmist is about to recount for us. So for us, what I want us to do today is I want us to pick one of those. Pick one of those memories of a time in your life where God was new, new before you could ask and act. When God knew you, knew something for you, did something for you before you could ask or act. And we'll talk a little bit about what those things are. But like, like when there's a moment in your life where like without asking God, without going to God in prayer, without a long time of supplication, something happened and you felt like, oh man, God just acted on my behalf and even before I could ask him to do something. Maybe it was a text message from a friend at a dark moment. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was keeping you from putting, pushing the gas on the pedal as the guy ran a red light. I mean, like, like any of those kind of things. It could be major things or minor things, but that could be one of the memories. When God knew before you could ask or act, he knew something about you, what you needed, and he provided that. Or think about how God was present in the heights. At a time when you... When you were at your, at your peak, time of happiness, of fulfillment, of success, or when you were at your low. And so I want you to choose one of those memories. And maybe you don't have it right this second, but decide which one you're going to go with. And so I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so just to quietly ask the Holy Spirit to give you which one you should choose. To bring into memory a time when God acted before you could ask, a time when God was present in the heights, where God was present in the lows. Don't try to force it. But if, the, if there's something that prompted you into one of those memories, just stick with that. And if there's not, then just choose one. It's fine. But I'll give you just a, a minute quietly to think about it. And then, I want, and then I'm going to read the psalm for us as you kind of dive into that memory. Okay? Maybe with the memory starting to, to bubble up, listen to the Psalm 139, 1 through 6. Asking the Spirit to just bring even greater clarity to that memory as you hear the words of the psalmist. God, you know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now here's where your notepads and pen are going to come in handy. So for the next few minutes, we're just going to be quiet, and I'm going to let you kind of dwell on that memory, that time when God was present to you, knew you before you could ask, when he was present in the heights or in the depths. But I want you to actually recount some of the details of it. Write down what are the circumstances around it. What made you aware that it was God with you in that moment? And then describe how you felt after you knew that God knew you, was there with you. What were the emotions that were involved in it? So for a couple minutes, just quietly, as that memory keeps coming back, I want you to just write down some of the details. Again, what were the circumstances? Maybe a text from an old friend in a moment of despair, a perfect job opportunity out of, seemingly out of nowhere, a series of unfortunate events that kept you from acting on a poor decision. Maybe it was a full, clear experience of God with you in some sort of way that transcended even words. Maybe it was at the moment of despair where you felt like all of life was lost. What were the circumstances? And then how did you know that God was with you? What was the thing that switched, the switch that flipped in that moment? And how did you feel afterwards? I'm going to be quiet for about three minutes or so while you kind of write down those details. And then we're going to read the psalm one more time and then have one more thing for us to do together.
I'll give you just a second to kind of finish your details. As you do, I'm just going to pray over you um, the prayer of examine from Psalm 139, then I'm going to read our verses one more time. And as I'm reading that again, the idea is just that you're, you're the memory that you've kind of chosen, that you've been led to in the Spirit, you're just getting a little more clarity to it. What were the circumstances? What made you aware of God? How did you feel afterwards? And then um, I'll read, I'll pray, pray for us, I'll read, and then we're going to move into the, to the kind of what we're going to do the rest of our time. Father, we are open books to you. Investigate our lives. Reveal everything about us. For you have known us. You have searched us. You have been with us in every moment, before and behind. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. You discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our path and our lying down and are acquainted with all of our ways. Even before a word is on our tongues, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem us in before and behind and lay your hand upon us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is high and we cannot attain it. Where shall we go from your spirit? Or where shall we flee from your presence? If we ascend to heaven, you are there. If we make our bed in Sheol, you are there. If we take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead us and your right hand shall hold us. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover us and the light about us be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is as bright as day, for darkness is as light as you. All right, here's what we're going to do now. So you remember what I said in from Hebrews chapter 12, some of the ways in which that we get to, to grow in this commitment to a joyful life, this holy commitment we're called to, is we listen to the stories of others, right, who have walked the same, who have had similar experiences of life with God and following God. So now we get to be a part of that story. We get to share our stories with one another. So we're going to break up into groups of two to four, and we're going to share a little bit about your memory. Share, again, kind of briefly, briefly enough to like make sure everybody has time to do it, but get to share what the circumstances were, how you discerned it was God, and what you felt afterwards. And then you get to listen to somebody else share their story to you, and to be reminded of the reality of what is true in both your stories, right? You get to be reminded that God is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So let's do that. We're going to break into groups. And then um, in just a few minutes, probably, let's see what time we got here. Um, in 10 minutes, Chaz is going to start playing, and that's kind of our call back into to worship, okay? So break up into groups of two to four so that we can make sure everybody's got time to talk. Sound good? Great. Ready to dismiss. There's like three cookies left. If you don't want to share, it's okay. You can just listen. But I encourage you, it's a small enough group. Everybody here loves you, knows you. Share.